Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is July 17th, 2018. And this is episode 20, Hold the Phone. What is wireless public alerting? In this episode, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of the newly operationalized wireless public alerting system, which was recently used for the first time in Canada. What is it? Where is it going? And can we rely on it in a time of crisis? To this end, we will be speaking with Tim Tritton once again from the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, as well as reviewing some literature on the ethics of public alerting. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Josh, wireless public alerting's arrival in Canada has got to be one of the most anticipated scheduled advancements in in emergency management, in in my memory anyways. Um, Yep. Yeah, I think uh, we were talking about it on our news episodes for all of 2017, and we were very excited when it arrived in April in Canada for the first time. And as many of you may recall, in fact, approximately 60% of you, um, there was a <laughs> there was a test of the new system during emergency preparedness week. Uh, since that test, those involved have been hard at work fixing bugs and working out the kinks. And we have the absolute pleasure of speaking once again to Tim Tritton on the details of the wireless public alerting system in Canada as it is right now. But before we begin, as always, acronym acronym analysis. That's right. Get out the decoder rings. There are a few acronyms you're going to have to be aware of to follow along uh, in this particular interview. So we'll start off with a couple of them that have been around and are ones that you might be familiar with. AEMA stands for Alberta Emergency Management Agency. WPA is Wireless Public Alerting. CRTC stands for the Canadian Radio Telecommunication Commission. And Palmerex is the owner of the Weather Network. CB stands for Cell Broadcasting, and we're getting into technical terms here. And LBSMS is Location-Based Short Message Service. And LTE, which is a term I'm sure you've all heard, but maybe you don't know of uh, in terms of what it stands for, stands for Long-Term Evolution, which for me doesn't help even in the slightest bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that in mind, let's get down to the interview with Tim Tritton, uh, which took place uh, earlier this month uh, on the 5th. Hello, my name is Tim Tritton. I'm the team lead for the Alberta Emergency Alert Program with the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. Tim Tritton, thank you once again for joining us on Epic Podcast, where we're talking about wireless public alerting. Now, despite extensive media coverage on the topic, I think there's still some misunderstanding out there about what wireless public alerting is and and how it affects us. So if you wouldn't mind, what the heck is it and how did it come about? Sure, sure. Well, wireless public alerting officially launched on April 6th here in Canada. Uh, It went across Canada as a result of a CRTC decision. Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Commission that said that uh, wireless um, tele- providers, service providers, the Rogers, Telus, and Bell, Kudo, Fido, Freedom, those sort of things, all have to carry emergency alerts. This is exactly the same process that they went through in, in 2014 with the broadcasters, that the radio and TV broadcasters have to carry it. So we went live on April 6th. In fact, Alberta issued its first wireless alert uh, not long after that uh, in April with um, some uh, flash flood that was occurring. 
The official national test, which the CRTC also mandated, went uh, forward on May 7th and 9th, 7th in Ontario and uh, Quebec, and on May 9th in the rest of Canada. So it was a chance for the issuers, the the aggregator, Palmorix, or the weather network, most people would know, and the wireless service providers to all stretch their legs, test the new system, and see see how it really works. As part of that, we've had a public awareness campaign. We tried to make sure that people knew what was coming. Uh, the, t- uh, the wireless service providers all agreed to send out a, a, a text message to people, letting them know the Palmorix uh, arranged a, both an internet internet and radio and TV uh, advertising campaign trying to increase public awareness prior to test date. So what makes wireless public alerting different than any of the other options out there? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, alerting has gone through four generations, technically speaking. It's gone from the um, indirect, which was, you know, the siren. It went through a radio and TV. It went through the Internet-based with social media uh, and apps. And now it's into direct-to-consumer. And so wireless public alerting is a way to get a very short message to uh, directly to the consumer uh, using their preferred communication device in we haven't given up all the other channels, all the other ways of delivering the message. This isn't a one-and-done kind of thing. This is a complementary series of packages that wants to make sure that no one's left behind. So uh, if you get your news via radio and TV, we try to issue alerts on radio and TV. If you get it from your phone, we want to be on your phone. So uh, it's it's a complementary package working together to try to keep people safe. And who is able to issue these alerts? In Canada, there's 13 jurisdictions, um, 13 provinces and territories, and Environment Canada. Those are the only ones that are issues. Now, in each jurisdiction, whether you're in Saskatchewan or Alberta or BC, there's different rules in terms of who they then delegate that power to. Since 1992, Alberta has used a decentralized model, which makes it unique uh, in that we believe that alerts are about speed, getting the message out as quickly as possible, and the people in the community, the emergency management people in the community are best uh, positioned to make sure that the alert is as fast and as accurate as possible. So in Alberta, we have about uh, 850 users of the Alberta Emergency Alert System and representing about 400 communities. So is this new wireless public alerting, is this now the best way to receive disaster warnings? Uh, what are the pros and cons? Is it a best channel? I don't know. I can't say that. Uh, I think you have to use all the channels every time to get it out. Now, there's some pros and cons to that. Uh, when we talk about approximately 3.1 or 3.2 million phones in Alberta, we're not talking about everybody carrying an Apple or an Android device. There's a whole range of equipment out there. And so one of the challenges is how do you gear um, an alert to make sure that people get it who are using a Nokia flip phone as versus an iPhone ten or an X, right, or an Android Samsung S9. So you've got all that variability in technology, which really makes a, a part of it different. I think the biggest challenge with, with wireless public alerting is it directly involves the individual consumer. You know, there's 3.1 million devices out there in Alberta um, are now part of the alerting chain, if you will. 
and they we have to try to work with them but there's also a responsibility for the consumer to be to be aware as well were there any issues or challenges with consumer awareness for this uh, wireless public area? oh yeah yeah um i think one of the things that happened right off the bat was we the telcos issued the alert um, message saying you know we're coming on may 9th you're going to receive a test alert they issued it using an SMS or a short message technology, what we mostly call texting. Virtually all machines, all devices can receive that, and so most consumers received it. When it came time to issue the alert, it was issued on the cell broadcast network. Cell broadcast works like a radio, if you will, and it just broadcasts to anybody in the area. And not all devices in people's hands were able to, to receive that. They had to be an LTE-compatible device, had to be a, a relatively new device with updated software. So some of those, I think that expectation that I was going to get it because I got the text message, followed by, well, I didn't get it on my phone, was one of the big, uh, big concerns that people had. Yeah, so you mentioned this test that just happened in May of 2018. There's been a lot of criticism around people not getting the texts or, or what have you. Was this a successful test, and what did you learn? Well, I guess, you know, the very fact that we're talking about it tells me it was. We were trying to increase tests. You do tests for three reasons. You test the equipment, and we did that. We had a chance on the 7th to see what was working in Ontario and Quebec, make some changes. May 9th, we were at the rest of the country, so we tested the equipment. It allows us to test the issuers because it's very stressful in realizing that you're going to send something out that could possibly reach two or three million people in a few seconds. Uh, and third, it gives us a chance to increase public awareness, and I think the test did all three. It gave the issuers a chance to to go live, if you will, and go live to air. It gave the telcos and Pelmorix, the aggregator, a chance to test their equipment. And it also gave a public an opportunity to increase their awareness around the event. So the fact that most pe people say, I didn't get it, to me is significant. And that shows the test actually did work because you knew about it. You, you were saying, well, why didn't I get it? And, you know, before that, alerting may not have been first and foremost on their mind. I really like that. You know, it is a, truly a test and not a demonstration per se. So sounds yeah. like there are a few technical glitches to, to work out. Uh, but what are some of the other opportunities that are afforded by this mm -hmm. technology and this method? And what is the future of wireless public alerting? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the future is bright for wireless public alerting, again, in, in concert with all the other testing. But I think as we start to be able to geo-target more uh, and we can fine-tune the alert message to a smaller and smaller area, to me, that's really powerful. And I can envision, we're not there yet, I don't want to, do lead us down the path but i want you to understand that i think there's the technology is going to get to the point where we could get to an alert that goes out and says floors of a building one two three and four evacuate floors four five and six shelter in place hide so that you could really start to tailor the alert message to the to the needs of the individual um, and the individual situation. I think that's the big promise with wireless public alerting, and particularly now that as the telcos go from having one model with cell broadcast enabled to having all their models by April of 19, 2019, 
Um, you know, we're just going to continue to increase market penetration. More people are going to have the devices in their hand that will let them get those messages faster. The only thing about that, though, is the message is very short. So you need some way, given human nature, you need some way for them to get confirmation and more information. And so you always need those complementary partners. And, and in Alberta, we have an app, for example. We have social media feeds. We have an app, all of which work together so that you know, as that message flashes up on your screen, on your WPA message uh, flashes up on your screen, then you, you have some place to go to check to get more information. You have a website, you have social media, you have the app. All those things are really important to make sure that you get a complete picture. And you're believable. you got to be credible. Since its creation and that initial test, has there been a, a chance to utilize this technology? And, you know, to what effect has it increased awareness? Well... Yeah, that's always the question is what effect. But the, the answer is yes. We've had, uh, in in May, we had a wildfire in McKenzie and a wildfire in the foothills, number 31, both of which we saw the wireless public alerts being issued for those areas. Uh, so uh, tornado alerts, Manitoba, uh, we've seen those kind of alerts going out. So are the alerts going out? Yes. Have can have we got any documentation on effect? Not really. Uh, the literature at this point, I think the scientific research is very thin in terms of when you start dealing with societal events. If you talk about two million or two and a half million people in the province of Alberta receiving an alert, and then asking, well, what impact did they have on them? Uh, it's pretty hard to to generalize one event to all the other events. Uh, so. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on, on cause and effect. You've mentioned a few times the importance of joining different sources or utilizing several different channels and, and having that collaborative approach to information gathering. Is there an opportunity in, in wireless public learning for that to be automated? Yeah, definitely. The, the, the big one I see is is a gradual increase of, through the Internet of Things as we start to see the fridge and uh, you know, your uh, Alexa or, or home device, your Nest, being online, being able to issue alerts through to them. I think that's going to be a, a, big, a big thing. Uh, the other one I think we'll see, um, and this is a long way off, it requires, I think, augmented intelligence, is going to be the, the two-way communication in which we call people answer. Uh, they provide you know real-time information back to the emergency management agency about the about the situation. That's that's not that far-fetched, but it's a it's a significant leap in current process. We're used to thinking about issuing an alert like a siren. We just send it out there, and good luck, God bless. Um, hopefully, people will react appropriately. As if we talk to bringing in the public as a whole into the emergency management situation as a partner and as a, as a remote sensor, if you will, for the agencies involved. Uh, now you've got all sorts of new issues and that really is going to require uh, big data and, and a new technology. It can't be handled manually. You know, talking about advanced communication technology always brings up the issue of privacy. Were there any privacy hurdles that had to be overcome to make wireless public learning real? The, well, the privacy, the Federal Privacy Commissioner ruled twice on this, uh, both times being that arguing that life and safety trumps privacy. And so it's really important that the, you know, people's health and safety is more important than their privacy in the moment. 
And since we're always political, is only used for the most serious events, the, the tornadoes, the wildfire evacuations, the, the flooding, the emergency flash flooding. Uh, you know, it's more important to get the information out. The real, one of the reasons that cell broadcasting technology was used rather than SMS is there is no real record of who received the alert. Now, that's good and bad. You know, I mean, there's no privacy consideration. But at the same time, we don't know if Billy on, you know, Mabel Street actually received the alert or not. There's no way to know. Is that something that's missing from the, the current wireless public alerting uh, structure, that confirmation piece? Well, and, and the question is, do we want that? I mean, there's an ethical question there that I'm, I, I haven't got a good answer for because I don't need to know where Billy is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't want to know that. But if, I want to be able to know that Everybody in the inf- in an area that was subject to uh, I don't know wildfire got the information as quickly as possible. So you, you got to weigh that the pros and cons of it, right? Uh, the CRTC did that in their decision twenty seventeen ninety one, and decided the cell broadcast technology was the one that was going to be used in Canada. So you know I think that's uh, there's trade offs. There always is trade offs. And I can imagine that even beyond the ethical consideration, there might be legal ramifications to uh, receiving a a warning and and knowing that Mm -hmm. it was received and then not acting on it. Well, and I mean, ultimately, people are responsible for their personal safety and this government's duty to warn. Uh, And I, I believe that, you know, that's part of our public safety mandate. But you know, what people do and whether they received the warning and then took appropriate action. I mean, certainly no in Fort McMurray. We saw cases of individuals warned that a fire was coming, saying, no, I'm going to stay and defend my property. Well, you know, that's a that's a personal choice. Um, and and you can't you can't stop that. But I think as long as government makes all reasonable efforts to to warn the population and inform them of danger, um, they've done their due diligence where where you can't force people to, to be safe. I mean, that's not, not allowed in our society. So final question, uh, as it stands in its current form, can the Canadian public rely on wireless public alerting for disaster warnings and critical information? Uh, can they rely on it? I would say it's one of several channels. You would no more rely on it than you'd rely solely on radio and TV or on your Twitter feed or anything else. It's complimentary. It works with all the others. Does it work? Yes. Uh, will it work every time in every situation for every individual? Probably not. Uh, you know, technology changes. Did you keep up with the latest update on your Apple or Android device? Uh, so, you know, there's it's complimentary, and you've got to really think of it that way. Is it working with all the other choices that you have available? Tim Tritton, thank you so much for joining us for this epic interview on wireless public alerting. I've certainly learned a lot, and I hope to have you back again. Well, give me a call anytime, uh, Grayson. It's good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Awesome. Well, great interview. Uh, Grayson, what stood out for you? Yeah, well, it's always great to talk to Tim. He's got a sort of a no-nonsense, uh, straight-to-the-point air about him. And what really sparked my interest in this conversation 
was the ethical components when speaking about wireless public alerting or just public alerting in general. Uh, he talked about the Office of the Privacy Commissioner and, and their ruling, and uh, that got me thinking, and, and I did a little bit of digging, and I, I dug up the um, consultation document that was published, and I was surprised to see how focused their consultation was on the method of delivery. So not uh, not a whole lot about uh, what was considered a privacy breach. They, t they touched on the sharing of telephone numbers as a potential breach, but they really focused in on the difference between the cell broadcasting, which is a bit more anonymous, and that LBSMS, so the, the location-based short messaging system, uh, which does require attaching phone numbers to the location of individuals. So that struck me as odd that uh, an ethical consideration would be so tactical and so technology based. But as it turns out, that's not the first time this has happened. So there's a great article uh, by Maletti and Sorensen. Uh, it's from 1990 and it's called Communication of Emergency Public Warnings, a Social Science Perspective and State-of-the-Art Assessment. It was developed for the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, through Colorado State University. And it is, is quite comprehensive. There's all of the basic information on public alerting in terms of having the right channels and the consistency and the credibility and, and a lot of theory. And then towards the end, there's a section on societal issues and ethics of warning systems. And way back, even as far back as 1970s, this has been something that has plagued public alerting. Uh, apparently there's a device called DIDS, so Disaster Information Dissemination System, uh, which evolved in the 1970s, which was this technological breakthrough. It was going to solve a lot of the problems and its mechanism was that it externally activated radios. So it could, it could turn on the radios and, and start broadcasting uh, information. And in the 1970s, this was considered a breach of privacy. But today, not so much. Uh, in fact, we have uh, numerous devices that, that do something similar. And it's just interesting to see how the sort of societal perspective on what constitutes a breach of privacy, whether it be reaching into your phones or reaching into your radios or whatever the case may be, has changed a little bit over time. Yeah, that is quite interesting. I mean, certainly I can see why people might be concerned if they think that, um, you know, Big Brother is watching their uh, location at all times and uh, that could potentially be used for other purposes than just disaster alerting. Um, at the, you know, from the emergency manager perspective, though, uh, what a great tool if you can geofence an area and inform specific uh, very specific populations and uh, geographies of uh, you know key messages that would be a powerful tool for communications. Yeah, and jumping back to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner's report, that was exactly the conclusion they arrived at was that really you know safety trumps privacy in the case of an emergency. But that raises all sorts of other questions in terms of when can you actually play that trump card? When can you actually do this? Uh, and so they came up with what is, I think, a, a very useful document. It's called the Privacy Emergency Kit. It was published in May of 2013, and it's by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. So this is a very Canadian approach to uh, getting around some of the privacy issues, um, not just around wireless public alerting, but privacy issues during a disaster. Now, what struck me about this document was 
right up front and I'm going to read it word for word, uh, a statement that says, privacy laws should not be considered a barrier to appropriate information sharing, nor should they be used as an excuse for an inaction. And I'll say that again, nor should they be used as an excuse for inaction. And I think we can all probably think of, of times when um, it was probably used as an excuse or put up as a barrier as we can't tell you that that's a, a privacy issue and it was just so refreshing to see that statement come out of the office office of the privacy commissioner in an, an emergency document so uh, definitely take a look at this because it it really narrows down what you can and cannot share or the theory behind what you can and cannot share not only from a federal perspective but each province and territory has a little bit different legislation and they break that down and there's all sorts of links to the the different legislative options that are out there yeah you know and i think that's really important for continuing education for emergency managers is to develop your own personal uh you know library and some quick references that you can pull up and and how to actually uh, interpret, uh, whether it be privacy legislation or, uh, you know, legal responsibilities and things like that on the fly, because certainly, um, you know, those questions do come up and, uh, you don't want to be thinking about them for the first time during an actual response. So, um, yeah, I think that's definitely really important information for, uh, emergency managers in, in any organization. Yeah. And if you're, if you're having trouble, deciding how to prepare that sort of framework for decision making or get your library of references together, well, this document has a, uh, an approach to that. One of the checklists that they developed is called the Before an Emergency Checklist for Handling of Personal Information. And it uh, breaks this sort of complex topic down into step-by-step instructions that I think are specific enough to follow quite easily but also uh, really important just general guidelines so step one for the before an emergency appropriate handling of personal informa- information is identify those legislative authorities so really get to know the acts and who's who uh, in your jurisdiction step two draft your own policy and procedures so that you can refer to them in times of crisis step three establish a decision-making framework and the CRTC is currently creating a decision-making framework for that uh, exact purpose. Uh, Step four, ensure the quality of your information. So double check your sources. And step five, uh, establish information sharing protocols when necessary. Then step six and seven, train your people, and then see if you can uh, come up with a method of transitioning out of the emergency, um, which is also very important. So some step-by-step instructions in this very Canadian document that might be helpful to you. Fantastic. So... What's your sense uh, after that interview, Grayson, of, of where things are heading? You know, I think it's just nothing but excitement on wireless public alerting. I know it was a bit of a rocky start. Uh, I remember where I was when I got the first Canadian wireless public alert. I was actually in, in the hospital and uh, we were bang on for the uh, percentage of people that that actually got the alert. It was about 60% of the people in the room. Um, and judging by the progress that has been made in, in a few short months, uh, I think the sky is, is the limit. I'm excited to see what comes out of wireless public alerting and how emergency managers can plug into it a bit more directly and perhaps even get some information out of the process. I can already see you telling uh, 
you know, future emergency managers where you were during the first uh, public alerting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> message. Um, awesome. All right. Well, why don't we move on to the tool of the trade for this episode? Yeah. So as always, uh, we'd like to plug the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and the Alberta Emergency Alert System. So if you don't have the app and you live in Alberta, get it immediately. It's it's important. Uh, but that's only good if you're in Alberta. Are there other uh, provinces and territories that use a similar app? Yeah, Saskatchewan also has a, a similar app, which is quite good. And uh, across the country, there's lots of municipal apps and uh, universities and other organizations that are making uh, emergency alert apps. But it can get a little confusing. There are a lot of different sources out there. And one of the other tools that I have been using recently is called the Alertable app. Uh, just Google or search for uh, Alertable. And it sort of scours all of the available alerting infrastructure and information sources out there and sort of centralizes it and delivers it to you based on your preferences to do with region or even type of alert. Uh, and you can get anything from the severe weather warnings, which have no protective actions recommended, all the way to those critical uh, alerts. And uh, it seems to be pretty comprehensive. So just another tool for the belt. Awesome. And on to our journal club for this episode, uh, a quick um, review of an article, which is a nice uh, overview of the literature. If you're interested in reading more about public alerting is actually the NIST, um, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST Technical Note 1982, which is a literature review of public response to short message alerts under imminent threat. And this was published back in January uh, 2018. And it's a very nice high-level overview. Um, they do a good job of going through both the gray literature as well as um, academic journals. Uh, and they provide uh, a good current state of the science and what we know about how people respond to um, emergency notifications. And what I really like about it, they break it down by notification method. So they talk about SMS versus Twitter. They talk about how many characters you need to optimize uh, disaster messaging. Um, there's a few nice pearls in the article, things like um, one study that looked at the percentage of people that would understand um, acronyms that were perceived by emergency managers to be uh, standard acronyms, things like uh, MST, like Mountain Standard Time. Uh, a large percentage of people didn't actually recognize that acronym. Uh, various U.S. Uh, government departments, like U.S. DHS, Department of Homeland Security, um, and these acronyms, I think, frequently uh, creep into um, emergency uh, messaging just because they seem familiar to us, and we're under, you know, pretty tight character limits. So something, you know, to, to think about when you're creating these messages. It also talks about how to improve credibility and actually making uh, messages actionable. So, so you can freely download the full PDF at the NIST website and just look for Technical Note uh, 1982. Right on. And just before we go, I do want to take the time to mention that Epic Podcast is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATV Financial. Um, the Alberta Podcast Network is a great group of really motivated and inspirational podcasters within Alberta. And one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently is the Mess Hall Podcast, which uh, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with emergency management, but is a good little break. Uh, they talk to comedians about food, and it is absolutely hilarious and a pleasure 
to listen to. So if you need a, a break from the academia, the Mess Hall podcast might be for you. Also, if you want to make a difference for a cause that is important to you, you should know about the ATB Cares program. ATB Cares lets you increase the impact of your donations. You donate to your favorite charity on atbcares.com, and then ATB will cover the fees plus add 15% to your donation. In 2017, over $4 million was donated to charities through ATB Cares, so it's a great way to support a worthy um, charity of your choice. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Tim Tritton for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of wireless public alerting. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.